I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome to My Perfect Console. I'm Simon Parkin. Each episode, I invite a guest to pick the five video games they would like to immortalise on their very own fictional games machine. Perhaps it was the first game they received as a birthday present, or the one that so obsessed them that it caused them to fail their exams, or maybe it was the only thing that got them through a breakup. Games often become powerfully attached to a particular moment in our lives. When we return to them, they become warp points to the past. So join me, Simon Parkin, as I search for my perfect console. My guest today is the reclusive designer of one of the greatest video games yet made. He studied game design in Montreal and after a brief stint working at Ubisoft, left to begin work on a game of his own a platformer that combined the art style of the Super Nintendo classics of his youth with perspective-shifting innovations of his own. Six years in the making, Fez launched in 2012 to near-universal acclaim, part of the first wave of so-called indie games. After featuring heavily in the film documentary Indie Game the Movie, my guest, who is passionate and outspoken, became the subject of coordinated online attacks which culminated in his retreat from public platforms nearly a decade ago. I sometimes feel really lucky to be doing what I'm doing, he once told me. I complain a lot and it's difficult, but I am damn lucky to be doing exactly what I want. Not a lot of people get to say that. Welcome, Phil Fish. Hi. Hey, Phil. How have, have you been the last few years? I've been okay, uh, considering everything. You're back in, back in Canada at the moment. Is that where you were for, for the lockdowns? Uh, yeah, I spent, I spent my, uh, my COVID years uh, back home in Canada. And and that's where you grew up as well in in Quebec as well. Yeah, in and out of uh, Montreal. Is this a rumor? Or is it true that your real name is Philippe Poisson? 
Yes, that is that is my real name. Okay. And the, there's a thing that happens in Quebec when your name is Philippe Poisson and you introduce yourself to people. Uh, more often than not, they go, ah, Phil Fish. Right. It's automatically. There's just like an automatic translation that happens where they just, they say it out loud. Uh, so that's, that's just kind of always been my name also. You know, the teachers call me that. Like, it's just people think they're funny and clever and they're the first one to, to come up with it. But it's like near universal. Does that does that happen for other members of your family, or is it just just fit because you've got Phil as your first? My name? my father also had that uh, to a, a different degree, but yeah, I think the the alliteration helps, and uh, it it stuck, it cemented itself as a real thing when I started dabbling in the the indie scene. And I was working in the industry at, at big studios that had less than ideal policies about how you can use your your spare time in regards to making video games. So at some point when we started getting some attention and doing like interviews and things like that, I, I started insisting on the separation of like, if we're going to be talking about the indie stuff, use Phil Fish. That way it doesn't come back to my employer as immediately. Uh, and I can kind of just have a, a clear clear separation between the two. I, I regret at the time not thinking of doing the, the Daft Punk thing, wear a mask all the time and then... <laughs> have people not know what I look like. I should have done that. Yeah, it's, it's like funny for anyone who first knew of you as Phil Fish, it really sounds like Philippe Poisson should be the pseudonym. <laughs> no, it's the it's the real, it's the other way around. Yeah, uh, yeah maybe it sounds fancier to, to some people. <laughs> it sounds like you're a French spy or something when it's that way around. <laughs> Um, and then, so just tell me, when did when did like video games enter enter your life? Was it something that you had in your household as a young kid? Oh yeah, pretty much from birth. Like some of my earliest memories, uh, I'm on my dad's knees and he's doing something. I'm on a Commodore sixty four. There's just always been some form of game played on a video screen my whole life. And it, I I read that he your father translated the Legend of Zelda into French for you. Is that is that true? Uh, yeah, we didn't have French version of video games at the time. Maybe they existed. I'm not aware of, of copies making it to, to Quebec. But like in France, I'm sure they had the Legend of Zelda in French. But in Quebec, just being part of kind of the North American market, we just got the like the English box. So for a game that featured not a lot, but some important text, uh, I, I needed I needed help with that. So yeah, my, my dad would translate some of that. And I kept like a little journal, a little notebook. <laughs> And then would translate the things like, you know. Oh, I see. So, so you'd be playing and he'd be sort of reading it out to you or would he actually write, write it down for you? Yeah, uh, you would read it out loud whenever it would happen. And then I would like on my map, make a little note or something when, you know, th there's all these hints and Zelda one that tells you to go somewhere uh, that would have been completely lost on me without the translation. That was, that was one of the first examples of a game having an element like that, that kept me from, you know, it's not a problem in Mario or Tetris. There's no text. That's, uh, that is an adorable <laughs> anecdote. So, um, and, and your parents were, were both aspiring artists, but they'd, they dropped out of, of art college, but they were very encouraging to you with your your art skills is that right yeah yeah uh both my parents were art school dropouts that ended up working in uh kind of creative fields but not necessarily in in uh creative positions and so when i i went to high school i went to a, a special special art program they called it concentration art where we ended up spending as much time in art class as we did in French and math class combined. Like we were just there half the time, half the days for five years, just working with 
every medium imaginable in this really awesome kind of art lab that had everything, you know, it had a press, it had a dark room to develop pictures. We made our own Obscura cameras. They had a computer lab, which was amazing at the time. You know, we had Photoshop as part of the, the arts program. And so we got to try everything, painting, sculpting, name it. It was very formative, obviously. And then you, you sort of follow in your parents' footsteps in that you then go off to art college yourself, but, uh, but don't stay there very long. Can you just tell me about that? Yeah, I ended up doing about two weeks of uh, art school in our, our equivalent of college in Quebec because having just come out of my special high school program, that was very intensive. They were teaching us stuff that I'd learned like five years ago that I already knew. It was like if it was your your introduction to art, basically. You started year one, you know, art 101 in college. And I was I was beyond that. Um, so I didn't last very long. I was like, this is just kind of a, a waste of my time. I'm just rethreading old ground. I ended up dropping out and going to work in the animation industry instead. Mm-hmm. And that's where that's where your your father worked. Is that is that correct? Yeah, yeah. I was a bit of a Nepo baby in the animation industry in Montreal, where uh, my dad got me this job. Uh, At first, I was a scanner. I was manually scanning the physical drawings that were being shipped in from Korea by the crate, working the midnight shift in a basement with all the other weirdos. Then eventually, I graduated to 2D Painter, where I I colored the frames and the drawings frame by frame for a bunch of different kids show a couple of different production companies because uh you know film and television the way employment works there is based on the the productions that are currently in production and once the production ends well they don't have any more work for you so they fired everybody and they tell you well come back in three months we'll have another movie lined up or something so you ended up just kind of cycling in and out of the two three different production companies in town and it was all the same people migrating at the same time uh, it was it was pretty terrible so the, the the format of this podcast is that i'm asking you to pick the five video games you want to put on your perfect games machine um can you tell me about about your first game which i guess you were you were playing probably while you were still in school in 1998 right well in in trying to make my list of games my top criteria was games that i come back to a lot over the years that i keep just getting back into year in year out Either they're short games that can be played uh, and in one sitting, and I do that yearly, or, or bigger games that I just spread out over years and years and years because I like them so much. And the first one of those is Ridge Racer Type 4 from the PlayStation 1. bit of a weird pick for me because i'm not a racing game guy at all not a car guy in the least i don't know anything about mechanics with car companies or um, motorsports in general like no interest in that stuff at all but for whatever reason ridge racer type 4 holy shit i love that game i play it on a yearly basis uh i listen to its soundtrack when i work constantly it has just been a presence in my life ever since it came out and it it is as fresh and as cool today as the day it came out. It's just like a, a, a timeless 
effortless kind of cool <laughs> it's it's like putting on one of my favorite albums right it's it's a vibe just an impeccable video game vibe of playstation one pixely japanese acid jazz racing i i love it to bits yeah yeah it's got in in my head the i think the intro cgi or full motion videos i used to call it at that time it, it's sort of got this beautiful blue skies and yeah really sunny look and and a Again, that's all all comes through in the sort of evening, summer evening racing colours that are used as well. And it, it's just associated now with like a lovely summer <laughs> of playing the game. I don't know if it was actually like that when it came out, but that's certainly like the space it occupies it in my memory. Yeah, it, it feels it feels really good. It's just like a, a warm memory that I just like going back to all the time. Now it's it's come kind of full circle, whereas if you if you made a game that looked exactly like that today, the indie scene would be fawning all over the cool PlayStation style retro graphics. But like the everything from the the UI, the presentation, the the logo design, the team libraries the soundtrack, like everything about it is just so impeccable and, and so cool. I don't know why only on that one game they fired off on all cylinders like that. It's like I don't even particularly care about Ridge Racer as a franchise in general. You know, one was cool. And then I, I get confused about what comes after that, Rave or Rage or for whatever reason on four, everything just yeah. clicked and they just made one of the coolest games ever. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's not like the, the other games in that series are doing anything that different, but there's just something about 4 where, like you say, everything comes together. It's all, all the different aesthetic elements just make it so memorable, <laughs> even though it, it doesn't play that different to the other games in the series, I suppose. It doesn't have anything like mechanically unique about it. This is Ridge Racer before they even started doing like the the boost, the nitro mechanic. It doesn't have anything. Like it's just you you accelerate and you brake and you drift. That's it. And there's cool music playing and then the, the maps look cool and the menus look cool and everything looks cool. And it makes you feel cool. The cars are almost like something out of a dream. Yeah. There's stand-ins for different types of cars that you can kind of identify even like to a complete neophyte like me i'm like oh yeah that's kind of like a muscle car that's kind of like a sedan i don't know i don't know what types of cars are but they got to have a lot more fun with it where the the later cars you would unlock were like all these wild experimental prototypes like there was a big hover tank thing just a big rectangular rectangular hover thing that went super fast there's like a weird rocket car uh and there was a the pac-man car that played the special pac-man remix uh, like they had, they had fun with it in a way that maybe you don't get to have when you work exclusively with the licensed vehicles. So, and and at some point, you make the decision to switch from uh, film and animation to to the video game industry. Is that something that had always been an ambition for you? Oh yeah, animation was never like my goal. I had no, I had no idea of like I'm gonna make my own cartoon. And it was a, it was a cool summer job basically. That that was better than what i could have gone elsewhere like if i was working in fast food or something that was just way more interesting than that because i got to learn all the ins and outs of animation production you know, from from storyboarding to the sound effects to voice recording everything was was done in-house it was like a like vertically integrated production company and even though like that wasn't my my ultimate goal like i'm, I'm a fan of animation i like cartoons i like that stuff so it was it was interesting to to learn how that stuff worked and Maybe a little bit of that applied to, to video games in some kind of 
some kind of way, but not really. But the whole time it was, I, it was clear that like eventually I wanted to get into game to, to, to make my own games. That was always, that was always clear. You leave and you take a job at, at Ubisoft in, in the city. Um, how did that come about? How did you get to, you know, switch to the role of a level designer when you've been you know, working in animation since school? Uh, well, there, there were some years in, in between that because the, the animation stuff, like I mentioned, I was, I was pretty young. I think I was like 16 when I first started my, my first season there. I did it for a couple of years. And then after that, I ended up when I uh, dropped out of art school, I ended up going to this kind of um, like vocational program that was a spin-off of a university in town it was a video game school basically a video game program that lasted one year it was super intensive and it basically it didn't just teach you the tools and the skills but it also it, it taught you like the the pipeline of a game production it kind of simulated a team with different roles and different milestones to hit basically to to prepare you as much as possible to immediately transition into a job when you were out of that school. So whenever a class was graduating, all the studios in town, all the Ubisofts and EAs at the time would come and try and have their first pick of the graduation class and look at everybody's portfolios. Like 90% of the people would get offered a job like almost on the spot. And then like the next month they were working on something or other at, at Ubisoft. And that's what happened to me. Uh, I did that program and then I immediately got hired at Ubisoft as a level designer, which was my, my goal at the time. I figured that that was the the path you had to take. You started out as a lowly level designer, and eventually you made it to lead level designer, and then eventually maybe they let you be a game designer. And then maybe if I played all my cards right within a decade, I would get to be creative director and I would get to just pitch a game that I wanted to make to Ubisoft and Ubisoft would be like, yes, here's millions of dollars and a thousand people go and create your vision which is obviously not at all how it works. And when, when I realized that, uh, uh, I changed my tune a little bit and realized that maybe the, the kind of factory approach to making games that uh, Ubisoft was using back then, and I assume it still is, their games have only gotten bigger, uh, was, was not the right space for me. <laughs> you know, I just had to kind of adjust the scope of what I was hoping to make to be something that was a little bit more realistic on, you know, with a small team and with the resources that we had. That being said, I still, I still wish I had a thousand people under me and like $30 million to just go crazy, you know, make the biggest open world nonsense thing. Uh, that will never happen because I'm, I'm, I'm basically unemployable outside of my own company <laughs> and I just don't have the people skills, but there, there are still things that I would like to make that are completely impossible for me to make outside of that system. And I would have to basically go back and, and, and work with all these a different set of limitations. But yeah, it's, I'm, I think I'm much happier just doing my own thing at my own pace. Tell me about your, your second game, which uh, came out in 2001. So I guess you're still sort of in your late teens. Can you tell us about the game and what was going on in your life at that time? Uh, the game is Rez. One of my all-time favorites, uh, kind of two of a piece with the last game because 
this one, like Registration Type 4, is just one of my favorite albums that I like to put on all the time, you know, on a yearly, if not more than that, basis. Just do a quick playthrough of all five levels and be satisfied for a while. I just keep going back to it. Uh, this one, I don't even really listen to the soundtrack outside of the game because it's so integral. Like, that's that's the experience. That's what you're doing is you're experiencing the soundtrack in this in this visceral involved kind of way uh that just doesn't work as simple piece of music for me uh, you know i want to feel the vibration of the controller i want to add my my little you know click track by repeatedly pressing the attack button even when there's nothing to target it just makes a little click sound and you can add to it like that res is just res is forever man res is never not gonna be cool res just keeps coming back and like being re-edited for all these new platforms for for VR, et cetera, and like new generations keep discovering it and it's still as cool as the day it came out. Nothing else since then has been this cool. When it came out, I was what? Uh, I was still a teenager. I was like 17 maybe. And I imagine that like, this is what it's like to go out clubbing with Tetsuya Mitsuguchi. Like it's exactly like this. Like I'm sure he's captured it. Like it's just such an experience. And the people that made it seem so, um, involved in that that culture over there yeah it is it's such a timeless game i i still don't really understand how it has such a timeless quality uh, i mean i think maybe a lot of those dreamcast era games because they weren't necessarily chasing realism did have like you know a different kind of longevity if you look at say like jet set radio or something like that that is another game that hasn't dated in the same way but this this goes deeper than just the the visuals right it's the whole the whole concept is is as you say timeless and i don't know that if that's because you're playing as like a you know a computer character floating through space so it's it doesn't there's n nothing to tie it to a particular era but um yeah i don't know what, it's what charm do you think? graphics it's wireframe it's just the most basic early computational graphics imaginable but set to a cool techno soundtrack wrapped in this whole concept of you know what they like to call synesthesia um which is which is not what is what synesthesia is but you know they, they were going for a kind of multimedia multi-sensory everything affecting everything the vibration affects the music the music affects the graphics the graphics affect the vibration and it, it works it just worked like they they nailed it you don't get that out of a mechanically almost identical game like panzer dragoon which is also great also has an amazing soundtrack awesome art and everything but it doesn't like tickle your brain the way that brez does this i don't know if it's like asmr or what but there's just there's something to it that that makes my brain happy and it's like i can't help but when i play the like i'm on the edge of my my chair and i'm i'm tapping my foot it's like my i'm nodding my head like i i'm all practically dancing sitting down like as much as you can dance sitting down and it like I don't know it just the the effect works every time for me I just don't get sick of it I I get back to it in, in 2D and VR it's all good yeah it is yeah it it, bene it benefits as well from a soundtrack that is has not aged either like I'm thinking so Res came out twenty twenty two years ago whatever and um, I don't know those artists that were composing for the soundtrack the music they were making then you can still hear sort of in today's music but music that was made 20 years before res came out like in 1980 just sounded so different right 
And um, so that's also helped helped sort of preserve that agelessness, perhaps. It's never really gone out of fashion in the same way. Yeah, that maybe says more about uh, electronic music in the last 20 years than it does about res. But I mean, I say that, but like I'm, I'm super into all that stuff. I never got out of that kind of music. Like it doesn't, it's like, it's oldies now, right? Like it's oldies, but goodies. I, I like my old, my old style, my old time techno music. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. And then, so tell me, you after you work at Ubisoft, you have a short stint of working on movie tie-in games. Is is that right? Which is, I, th- I guess, you know, for younger listeners, maybe they those th- those things don't exist anymore, right? But there was a time when every big movie had a big video game. Pretty much every movie, every like uh, kids' TV show. Uh, that was that was one of the specialties of my my next employer after Ubisoft. I ended up at they went by A two M back then. Artificial Mind and Movement. That's it. It's that stood for artificial mind and movement. Uh, they later rebranded to their current name of Behavior, the British spelling. Yeah, that that company at the time was pretty much a Game Boy Advance slash DS Disney Channel TV show tie-in factory, uh, and it was somehow even worse than Ubisoft. It was like out, you know, out of the frying pan into an even worse frying pan. What, what made you join that? Uh, well, I, you know, I, I still wanted to work in video games. I, I needed a job. I had uh, a couple of friends that had moved there. You know, that happens all the time. You know, uh, an industry as, as small as the video game industry in Montreal, people go from studio to studio. And I thought that maybe working at a smaller studio on smaller projects would let me have a little bit more of influence over them and maybe be able to to steer them in more interesting directions uh especially in the the gba and and ds scene that was just starting around the time like you know there were so many cool weird experimental things happening and people figuring out what you could do with two screens and stylus touch screen microphone etc and did did that work out were you able to do that oh uh, no no not at all <laughs> um I mean, to some degree, uh, in you know, some parts of some games, we got to have a little bit of fun just trying to emulate things like Phantom Hourglass when that came out, or like, oh wow, they do everything with the stylus. Maybe we can make our game work like that also. And trying to reverse engineer what Nintendo was doing at the time, 
you know, a good learning experience, definitely on, on that level. Um, but I was looking at things like the, the bit generation series coming out of Japan. I don't know if you remember those for the Game Boy Advance. Yeah, I do. Uh, yeah. Just these like super stylish, like boutique mini games made by a bunch of cool Japanese indie weirdos and their friends packaged just sublimely. I just the best packaging that series, the logo, the boxes, so cool and desirable. And it was on GBA and they were made for cheap because it's easy to make GBA games. And we have this whole studio there. People were experts at pumping out GBA games. It was like, what if we take, like, we just make a little, little skunk team, a little wet works on the side, like just a handful of people in between projects. And, and you let us, i.e. me, uh, come up with whatever like weird, cool experimental thing we want. And like, we'll, we'll create you a little sub label and it'll be exactly like bit generations. And they were not into that, um, <laughs> uh, because that doesn't make money, uh, as much as the, that's so Raven GBA game or, you know, something like that. So I, I, I found myself kind of in the same position again, just constantly making the same arguments over and over again. Like we could be making cool stuff. Like it's, we could, if we really wanted to, <laughs> Uh, we got all the resources, we got all the talent, we got, you know, tons of people that have been here for way longer than I have. It's that thing as well, when you're, when you're that sort of age and you are a bit fearless, aren't you? And you, you can come into a company and just really be like, okay, we need to do things like this now. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's incredible. Like the, how much of that I did and how little I realized it was completely unearned and like not my place at all to be doing it. Like I think about it today, I'm I'm, mortified. Uh, but back then, it was like, you know, I'm fresh out of school. I'm hot shit. I'm going to tell you what's cool and hot right now. We're going we're gonna to do these cool, weird little experimental Japanese games instead of this Disney Channel crap. Uh, it's amazing that they didn't fire me. Well, I can see, uh, like, I, I think my take on that is that when you're, you know, when you're being like that subconsciously, it, you probably know that you're in the wrong place for the for the vision that you have and the things you want to do. but you know, your life circumstances mean you need a job and blah, blah, blah. And you're sort of in the right place because you're right. You work at a company that makes video games. Yeah. You're so close. Yeah. But basically you're completely in the wrong place, aren't you? And so all of that sort of pushing against the management or whatever is just really your own frustration at like, this is uh, like, I, I know where I want to get to, but, uh, but I don't seem to be there or on the right path or something. How do you then get on the right paths and uh, start working on on the actual game that you want to around that time uh is when i first started dabbling into the the nascent indie scene back then uh which is was pretty much to me the the tick source forums that was it like that was the place that's where everybody met up that's where everybody knew everybody else from and you know i'm i'm still friends with some of these people to this day that was the like come to jesus moment of like oh i found I found the way, I found my people. Finally, I belong somewhere. These people think like me, they want to do the same sort of things I I want to do, and they're succeeding. I was at GDC that year, I think it was 2008. I met all those people, like I met Derek Yu, all those Tixers guys, and I saw them demoing their game at the IGF Pavilion. These games made by one or two people working out of their basement without a, a side job, and just to to learn that that was possible, that it was clearly difficult, like a lot of sacrifice, but 
look at them. They're doing it. They're about my age. Uh, you know, some of them live in Canada also and have similar realities to deal with and they're managing somehow. And that's when I got it into my head that, uh, that was going to be, that was going to be the path. Uh, and my, my attention, my focus and all my efforts kind of shifted to that while I was still working my day job. But it was clear that, that as soon as I could, I was going to quit and dedicate myself fully to, to what eventually became Fez. What, what was it that, um, financially it, it made that possible because um you know obviously you you need to live don't you if you're gonna work on a project like that we were one of the first if not the first recipient of what would eventually become the indie fund remember that that's they probably still exist i'm not sure but before they were the indie fund they were the fez fund they were funding just one game and it was us. And uh, out of the success of that, like working out pretty well, and they're like, yeah, this is cool. Uh, we can we can do more of this. They kind of organized themselves slightly differently and, and rebranded and became the indie fund and went on to to fund a bunch of different video games. But we we received some money. I don't remember how much, not, you know, a ton, some, some tens of thousands of dollars. And we were just a couple of kids that didn't need a whole lot of money to live. Uh, that's, that's the secret ingredient is having a really frugal lifestyle at the time. Today, if I were to get like the exact same set of people under the same conditions to make another game, it would be way more expensive because we have kids and mortgages and, you know, we're, we're nearing 40 now. Um, and we, we, life gets more expensive. When you're uh, early 20s, you, you know, you just eat ramen all the time. You live in a, a tiny, shitty apartment that you share with like six other people and you can give it your all. You've got nothing to lose. You know, You've, you, the, the, you, could, you can work all night. You can, you can sacrifice your youth <laughs> uh, to, to achieve these things uh, in a way that would be completely impossible now. At, at a certain point, you're, you're cognizant of that and you capitalize on it. It's like, this is my advantage right now is I can do that. And I realized that it's like a, a limited window that I'm not always going to be in a situation where I can just say, fuck it and be poor for a while. And, you know, we were very lucky to actually get some financial support pretty early on uh, that we managed to just kind of stretch out and get a little bit more here and there. And then a uh, publisher got involved and that took us to the end. But we were, you know, it was pretty much like paycheck to paycheck the whole time because nobody was planning on on it taking that many years. You know, if I if I pitched it that way when I first met him, I know it was like, hey, want to spend the next five years of your life on like practically no money and the low chance of success. It's it's a crazy gamble. Uh, one that I wouldn't repeat today. You know, I've got I've got more to lose now and I, I know more and I'm, I'm more afraid as a consequence of knowing more. Yeah, that's right. That's so true. Um, okay, so do you want to tell us about uh, your third game, which is from 2012? Changing register a little bit. We're getting out of the, the chill-out vibes, games as albums, and getting into uh, exotic murder tourism, which is another area of video gaming that I, that I like a lot. Uh, Dishonored.
Dishonored 1, to me, is the gold standard of narrative design and world building in video games. No one does it better than Arcane, and Arcane hasn't done it better than in the world of Dishonored. It's it's just one of those games that every now and then I just want to get back into. I just want to, like, you know, wrap myself in it. Every little detail of that universe, every little book and letter you find, the... The texture, the grain of that world, the way it lets you like crawl around on all four through people's garbage and just find all kinds of things you're not supposed to find. They're the best. Uh, this is the, I, I aspire to one day make that kind of immersive simulator game that has just that rich of a world to lose yourself into. The, the, the fiction, the environmental storytelling, the architecture, the technology, Every little part of the world is custom made, like is bespoke to tell a part of a bigger story. Like nothing is just thrown in there without care or basic things like chairs and tables are, are reimagined to be special chairs and tables from that universe that you could recognize like in a lineup and be like, oh yeah, that's a Dunwall style table because they, they build them weird that way because of whale oil or something like everything is just so unique and interesting even though you can tell like oh this one is supposed to be you know alternate history britain you can tell what the inspiration is but still everything is tells the story that this is an alternate universe that where uh technology is developed in different ways and had an impact on architecture and the city design and it's just it's just so rich i love in a video game when you're somewhere you're not supposed to be even like if, if that's the whole point of the game, like that, that feeling of like, I'm in a restricted area. Nobody wants me here. Nobody can know I'm here. That is just always exhilarating to me. And then, you know, the, the kind of the po- political aspect of it, of just all these shitty rich people that need to get got. And you're, you're the only one that can do it with your magical assassin powers. What kind, what kind of player are you, by the way? I mean, it sounds like you're you you're into the stealth element. Yeah, I I try to I try to play it like as perfectly as possible. I try to get the what they call it the ghost rating. I think I don't want to trigger any alarms. I don't want anybody to know I was there. Um, I'm not I'm not against killing a lot of people. Sometimes I'll do the like I only kill the target run. But yeah, I I really like sneaking around. I like finding all the alternate entries into buildings, all the windows that are open on the third floor or, or basement windows you can get into and you know, crawling around on ledges on, on outside of buildings and just like you really get to appreciate the all the detail that goes into the level design and the architecture. Like everything is just so considered because they're not big open world games. They you know, they get to focus uh, and and have this greater intent in the design. Yeah, that is that's such a great point, and and so many really good games just have quite a small um, geography, don't they? But they then use all of that manpower that goes into making it into making it really deep and really textured. But it, they're not trying to like do this expansive world that you can run around. I, I mean, those games are great, yeah, obviously, yeah. but it's it's wonderful when a when a development team says, actually, we're going to throw loads of money at just a very small area and make it incredibly uh, textured and, and rich. Uh, Arcane are, are masters at doing that without having it feel like it's small and constrained. Even if like at some point you've played so much of a, a level, and I, I tend to like just replay a level over and over and over until I, I know all the ins and outs of it. And then you have like this 
detailed 3D map of it in your head and you know that it's like, it's not a real city. It's just like, it's imagineering, right? Like they're, they're cutting off the streets in strategic ways that makes it seem like it looks like it's a full city and you can see into the distance, but the area you're allowed to explore is, is much more deliberate on that, but it, it never feels that way. And Dishonored comes out in 2012, which is the same year that your game Fez comes out. Um, you know, were you were you able to enjoy Dishonored at that time? Was it sort of something that you were able to disappear into after all those years of toil on your own project? Oh yeah, I did. I did a lot of that. Uh, once my my job on Fez was done, um, uh, there was still a lot of stuff to be done, but a lot of it was on the more technical side of things. So that fell on on the yes. So I was more disengaged. Like once we shipped for for gold, I was just like washing my hands of it. And like okay, I'm the, there's no more art. There's no more design to be done. Actually, the first thing I did, pretty much exactly the week I was done, is when Skyrim came out, and that I disappeared into that for like six months straight. And then uh, uh, later in the year, Dishonored came out, and I dove into that. I, I remember seeing you. It must have been about three or four weeks before Fez came out. You'd come over for Nottingham Game City, uh, now now defunct games event that uh, was wonderful. Um, but uh, yeah, I remember interviewing you at that time, and I went back and actually read the read the sort of back and forth we had there. And um, you put, "I've been in burnout for years now. Like I'm always a bit sick. I'm always a bit depressed. I've lost interest in everything. I'm really tired. <laughs> I feel like I'm going to have to rebuild my life because everything has gone to shit." I've had to neglect every aspect of my life to get this game done. Do you, do you recognize yourself in that? Oh, I know. I remember that. I remember that clearly. Yeah. Poor, poor young Phil. I, you know, I, I did have to, to rebuild a lot of things and I did have to take a lot of time off to kind of recalibrate and re-energize and just change my approach to a lot of things. You know, I, as you mentioned in the intro, I dropped off of social media some years ago. Uh, that was that was a big change, you know, in my life in general and just how I, I approached uh, my job, how I approached my audience uh, going from approaching it to not approaching it at all. That was an adjustment. Uh, I think it was ultimately for the best. My, my sense is um, that some of this stuff like had its origins in, in the, the film that you took part in, um, Indie Game, the movie. Uh, which, uh, you know, maybe some people haven't heard of, but at the time it was kind of a big deal because it was, here is this uh, film that's, you know, telling the story of the video game industry. It was shown at Sundance and things like that. And I think you were probably, I think it's fair to say, the star of that film in the sense that, you know, you you were just very passionate and outspoken and, and that always comes across well. That's always memorable, right, on film. And I wonder if you, you know, how do you feel about that experience of participating in that now? Is it something you regret or, or do you feel cool with it? I don't regret it, definitely. I, I don't think I'd be able to watch it now, today. It's been, it's been some years. It's been a long time since I've seen it. That being said, I'm, I'm glad it exists as a document, right? One day I'm going to be really thrilled that it's there uh, when I'm even more further removed from it. Now it's it's painful because it was a very painful time. Like I said, I, I remember all of it. Like it's still it's still pretty fresh, uh, even though it's more than a decade since then. At the time, it just kind of heightened everything. We felt everything more because the cameras were there, and then people were watching it and reacting to it. And, you know, there were a lot of a lot of opinions about it. It was just like it was a big deal. Like it was a big thing. Uh, leading up to it, 
uh, its release and then the the kind of the, like DLC that they did for it, like basically like a whole other movie's worth of stuff was put out as extras and you know it's it's of its time. It's definitely that very specific corner of indie games at that very specific time. Uh, and that's kind of the the biggest issue that I have with it today is looking back, like how it's all just North American white guys making puzzle platformers. Like it's so specific. It's such a narrow view of what that field was even back then. I've I've I'll, I've told James and these and this a bunch of times that I think they should make another one that doesn't do that that specifically talks to like a, a broader spectrum of people making different kinds of games in different countries different backgrounds the way that it showed like that it, it basically presented indie games as a whole it represented indie games as a whole even if it presented only a small fraction of it people were like oh that's indie games that I saw it in a movie it's that kind of guy making that kind of game and having very similar experiences of getting picked up by these big platforms that were doing a big indie game thing at the time. Um, you know, you, you mentioned that I was like, it, we were the first wave of indie games. And I always felt like of that wave, we were the last ones on that boat. But that those opportunities that we had back then don't really exist anymore don't work the same way like there's no such thing as the summer of arcade being like the the biggest deal of the year like if you can make it to summer of arcade like you're set for life like that's it like your game's a hit and let me let me just say that's such a shame that summer of arcade is not around this, this is when xbox would run you know one big indie game a week throughout the summer and it, they were always sort of you know there was they were fantastic games, weren't they? And like you say, it could it could really make a make a make a project. Especially a couple of years in it, it came with like a certain cachet. Like people like, oh, what are, what are the four or five games that they picked to be in the summer of arcade? And those games had their profile raised just by virtue of being part of the summer of arcade. Uh, that was that was very desirable. Like you wanted that. There was just a completely completely different landscape. So that's why now the the movie is interesting as as a time capsule of like this is how it used to be this is how it used to work and you can't you can't do that anymore don't don't try to do it like like in the game the movie after a few years later people started to criticize the movie a bit I suppose for um, glorifying the image of the artist as a suffering suffering for their art right the idea that you had to damage yourself in order to create something wonderful which isn't like not a new story that's been around for decades but uh you know i'm just struck as well because during uh, at one point i think in that film you say that if fez doesn't come out then you're gonna kill yourself or something something like that i don't know how serious you were being or not but but i mean that sense of you know really having to give your everything to something you're creating has your perspective shifted on that now oh yeah dramatically i i would never go that hard ever again i don't think i'm capable of it like the 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 burnout i suffered coming out of it was was real and took a long time to not get over because in my experience you never really fully recover you're you're always diminished you know but that's also part of of getting older I just can't put in the same number of hours that I use. Like physically, I can't. Like my arms hurt too much. I have got repetitive stress injuries now all up and down my body because of, because of how hard I worked back then. 
uh, you know, pulling all nighters, working seven days a week. But at the time, it's all encompassing. It's your whole world. Everything depends on it. Like your, not just your livelihood, but your your reputation. Because in in the case of Fez, you know, we started talking about it as soon as we thought of it, and then we had to manage like five years of hype. So there was like five years of expectation of people asking when it was coming out and is it going to be good. And you just, you just had to deliver because your reputation was on the line. There is for me, this feeling that like, I can't, I can't do this again. I can't do like, if it fails, I can't just turn around and spend another five years on another epic, ridiculous thing. Uh, cause my, my body won't let me anymore. I had one shot at doing that and I spent it on feds and I got very, very lucky that it worked out. Uh, some people worked as hard as not harder on their thing and then didn't work out. Let's, uh, let's take a break and turn to your, your fourth, fourth game for your console, which is from 2016. And another game of uh, assassination. Can you tell us about it? Hitman World of Assassination. So Hitman World of Assassination, talking about Hitman 1, 2, 3. Uh, what, a, what a masterpiece that thing is. What an incredible achievement. Uh, God, it's so good. Wh- where, where to begin? So you, you play as uh, Agent 47 and you just it's a bit like James Bond, but, but with if James Bond was restricted to just doing everything, like silent kills, basically. Yeah, if, if James Bond was tasked with assassinating everybody uh, with a toilet... <laughs> <laughs> or like even dumber things than that that's another thing like uh like ridge racer type 4 like i'm not a james bond guy at all I, that doesn't play for me for whatever reason but in the context of this video game all of these tropes these aesthetics the the gadget the super villains everything like the you know the the hidden underground bases the villain layers etc like dishonored i like this game because it it gives you just this beautiful intricate puzzle box of a level like the crafted to, to to such a degree so many options so many paths so many little side things to discover ridiculous sequence of events you can trigger and the way that it really is like a clockwork thing like things that happen at a certain time there are opportunities you can miss and the way i played that game well when the first one came out it was episodic right it was only the Paris map. And it took them like a couple of months to put out uh, the second map, which was uh, Sapienza, one in Italy. So for like two months, all I had was that one Paris map. So I played it nonstop for two months. Like I got mastery level 20. I had just about every one of those, like the really long list of like, here's all the different ways you can kill that guy. I got almost all of them. I just knew the ins and outs of that entire place, like the back of my hand, and not just on a spatial level, but on a temporal level also. Like I knew when things were going to happen. I knew when this character was going to be in that room. Even if I'm on the complete other end of the map, I know all oh, the lady I have to assassinate is having like our, our phone meeting in her room right now, and I can use that to my advantage somehow. 
these like I know them like they're real places that I've lived or worked at. Like the the, the layout of Paris is burnt into my my mind forever. You can play it all kinds of different ways, but I like to play it like Dishonored, like Silent Assassin, In and Out. Nobody knows I was there, and there is never like a big action moment in a playthrough like that. The playthrough can take one hour, and it's one hour of just me slowly walking, you know, casual like. To not attract attention, like I don't run places if I don't have to, because I want it to look like I'm just the smoothest, coolest assassin in the world. Even though it's everything is measured and and calm, and there is no big shootout, there's no big explosion, and then you just kind of like walk out the, the front gate. Like my heart is racing, like every time when that that music swells at the end when they they know you're approaching the exit. It's to me, it's there's something like sophisticated about it, not just like. It it presents itself in a very sophisticated way. It's all these like five star hotels and the world of the super rich and their ridiculous mansions and it's very opulent. Like just on a, talking about the number of assets in that game, but then the, the the richness of the things you can do. Like once you once you really know the ins and outs of that game, once you know the rules and like how people are going to react. One thing I love doing in these games is when I know that there's like a long routine, let's say there's an NPC you have to kill, that they do like a whole walk around the whole museum or whatever, and it takes them five, ten minutes to do the whole round. Even if I've just missed them, I'll go behind the bar as the bartender and just wait for five to ten minutes real time and do nothing. Like I just watch the people walk by and I go into whatever they call it, like spy vision and see that a little red highlight of the guy at the end of the map. I'm like, okay, now I was going to the bathroom and I was going to his office. And th- that's exciting for me. Like, you know, uh, it's not a fun game to, to watch, uh, to watch me play because they're like, please, t- please do something. It's like, no, no, wait, wait, it's just five more minutes. Yeah, you're just enjoying your job. <laughs> and uh, then he's going to have to go puke in the bathroom. And that's when I strike. Uh, you're drowning in the toilet. And then, you know, you can do stupid things like that and still pull off the perfect nobody saw you, nobody knew you were there. That is a level of patience that I do not possess. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's not fun for, for my wife or my friends watching me play that game, but I, that's how I like to play this game. Like, almost like in real time, if it, if it was an actual simulator that I, was, that I was partaking in. So I have like maybe five maps left for, for rainy days every now and then. Just like, you know what, I'm going to have myself a little Hitman weekend. It's like a, a you know, a little getaway. I'm going to go to some resort island, wear a Hawaiian shirt, and uh, <laughs> just eat the rich for a couple of hours. Uh, I just want to, like, quickly return to, we, we talked a little bit about, um, you know, Afterfest comes out and, you know, people love the, love the game, uh, quite rightly. It's hugely celebrated. And and then there's a fair amount of pressure, I suppose, on you to to work on a sequel. And you know, you during this period, like uh, as you talked about earlier, you know, you have, uh, I guess, a difficult relationship on with um, social media, and you're getting attacked from all sides, I suppose. And you have, uh, I don't know the ins and outs of it, but some kind of spat with a American f- video games journalist or something, which, as I understand the story is sort of maybe the catalyst for you saying, actually, I'm out, I'm going to leave social media and also uh, there's not going to be a Fez 2 now. Is that sort of, is that correct? And I guess my other question is, it seems like that's a fairly minor reason to cancel a creative project like that. So w- were you, do you think in some way you were maybe just looking for an out? 
one thing didn't cause the other quite that directly. You know, the the thing that happened was the the last straw, where I was already thinking about doing all those things, and there was just like this one moment where, yeah, you know what, fuck it, like I'm not I'm not doing that. So obviously, I wasn't feeling it to begin with. Uh, it felt like the the thing to do, you know, uh, strike while while the iron's hot then just make a sequel that's what you do in in video games you make a franchise and the the more i started working on that seriously the the less i was feeling it and the the more i was getting once again disillusioned with everything even in in my my position of uh having just had a successful video game having to follow up on that was a lot of pressure i maybe it was a bit of an out like i I, it certainly wasn't planned that like we're gonna wait for for one journalist to say something stupid and then just like blow up and and cancel it but um you know we weren't that advanced and we didn't have a whole lot to show other than the logo we showed i you know i certainly had concepts and concept art and things like that but we didn't have anything playable we were in you know pre-conceptual phase for the game when we announced it deciding to walk away was pretty easy because you know there was no real investment at that point it hadn't really cost us anything in, in time or money or energy. Or, and there was nothing really to be super attached to the way that like at some point, what, what's the term when you've got like you've, you've invested so much in something that you can't. Uh, uh, sunk cost. But yeah, sunk cost. You definitely get to a, a point like that eventually where as much as I, I fantasize sometimes to just cancel Fez 1 towards the end, like maybe year four or four and a half, like it's like, oh God, what if? What if we just cancel it? What if we just fucking disappeared and <laughs> no one ever sees or hears from us ever again? That, that became just like a, a, a fantasy, you know, like an escape. But it, it was obviously not a realistic thing to actually do. But with Fez 2, at some point, it was like, you know what? Let's just not do it. Let's call it off. Uh, and that was very liberating to to break away from that and then realize that I can do something else. Uh, and it doesn't even necessarily have to be a video game. Let's, I don't want to say what, because I'm still working on it, but <laughs> let's, let's go in a completely different direction. And just to step away from the, the social media, which, you know, around the time was, was starting to get real toxic. It's obviously way worse now. Right. You were like the canary in the Twitter cage. <laughs> I, at some point, it becomes like such a big part of your job, and even if if you're not working or like tweeting about your your project, but you're still expected to have a presence, right? You're still expected to to put out content, to do to do something, to just remind people that you're still there and have like all dumb jokes every day. Or it's like it's a lot. You just welcome all this sewage into your life. Also, when you do it, like there there's no. There's no opt out for the sewage pipe that gets opened up into your living room when you're uh, a public persona on the internet. And just making that that cut, that severance of just like, you know what, I'm just going to go back to just being private me. I don't have to tweet every dumb thing that goes through my brain all the time. It's it, it was it was like kicking any other addiction at first. Uh, but after, after the worst of it is over, you, you, you see in hindsight, like, oh, wow, that, that thing was driving me crazy. 
that thing was poison. Yeah. Uh, and even though sometimes you miss certain aspects of it, because it can be very validating, very gratifying. And then to, to decide to go back to work in a completely quiet, secretive way, it can be hard, but can be freeing also. Like you don't even, you don't know the things that I didn't finish that I ended up canceling these projects that I worked on and there's no like big drama around it. Right. There's no, it's, it doesn't follow me around forever. Yeah. You've only got your own, the weight of your own expectations to deal with, not, not those of everyone else. Yeah. Which, which can be a lot. Um, that's enough for me. Uh, just, just me, uh, is good. But at the same time, you know, it's, that's just part of the game. Now you have to, you have to let people know your stuff is out at some point. You can't just put out a game into the void and expect that on the the reputation of your last game alone somehow it's gonna it's gonna carry and it's gonna travel and people are gonna hear about it and you you have to become front facing at some point. Uh, but I've I've decided to be more strategic about when I I do that and when I don't do it, rather than just uh, accept the fact that you're just supposed to be front facing all the time forever and deal with all the negative elements forever yeah yeah i sort of feel jealous of i don't know people like um david bowie or someone like that who was uh you know what the dead uh, no <laughs> you envy the dead is that what you're trying to- oh but just people who were creating stuff at a time when I can't, I can't imagine him being on twitter going hey i've got a new single out or something like that i mean maybe he would have been but um yeah, I suppose that's uh, that was a, a temporal privilege he got of working at the time he did. That now there's just so much of everything, so many books, so much music, so many films, so many video games that just to get noticed, you feel like unless you're like that very zero zero point one percent of of people who are that well known, that you have to you have to be shouting about it, don't you? But um, let's uh, let's turn to your your fifth and and final game. Can you tell me about it? My fifth and final game is The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. I was currently in my, I don't know, fifth or sixth inning into Breath of the Wild, a game I've been stretching out for, I did the math, it was the 5.8 years since it released. I finally beat it last week. It's it's a game that I loved so much that like I, I didn't want it to end. I just couldn't bring myself to actually wrapping it up. I, I just wanted to keep it going. And in my family, playing Zelda at Christmas is a bit of a tradition. Most years, someone is playing one Zelda or another. I don't know why, it's just always been the case. So over the holidays, to get myself in the mood, I just started playing Breath of the Wild again. And this time, uh, because we're just months away from Tears of the Kingdom, knowing that there's more coming, I was like, okay, I can finish it. And also, I should finish it before I started the other one. But it's a game I've been coming back to the last almost six years 
and you know some games sometimes you you spend just a few months away then you come back it's like you forgot everything about them you know like it's you don't know how to ride a bicycle anymore you have to learn everything from from scratch with breath of the wild it's like just slipping into a warm bath like it's just so comfortable to get back to even though like it's a it's a fairly complex game like there's a lot of buttons that do a lot of things and a lot of little maneuvers and switching weapons on the fly and uh, uh, things like shield surfing that, that require like a whole sequence of, of buttons. It can be quite a bit to, to get back into, but everything else about the the game and the world and how it feels, it's just so welcoming. Another one of my favorite game worlds. I have a whole thing. I, I like games that have space and time. That's my big recipe for like a good open world or open-ish you know, like the Dishonored end of the spectrum. Games that try to present you with a world that you're in. When they have the space aspect, you know, architecture, level design, whatever you want to call it. But also the the passage of time is an obvious and important part of it. The, the feeling of events unfolding over time, of, of the way the story unfolds into that world, the way that different characters are at different places at different points in a day or different points in the story and people are, are moving from from village to village it, it feels like a whole simulated world i love that that's that's the magical recipe for me to to get completely lost in a game for hundreds of hours is games that capture those two elements of which are like you can kind of break down all of reality to these two key ingredients like space and time that's that sums up just about everything but games that lean into it and do interesting things with it that that's when it, it becomes magical like i'm almost six years into it I, I i'm still having moments where i discover a brand new thing that i didn't know was possible in that world or that i'd never seen or a corner on the map i'd never seen or or a mechanic or um a relation between elements the, the way the world is designed in that game is just uh, a masterclass of open world design. I, I just think it's so good. It's one of those games that makes me fall in love with games every time I play it and like kind of reaffirms to myself that like, yeah, this is what I want to be making. Like, this is a worthwhile use of my time on this world, trying to make a thing that makes other people feel the way this makes me feel right now. Like the, the level of of comfort and and wonder, joy and and mystery, it's it you know makes you feel like uh, like you're a kid again. Hey Phil, th- thank you so much for sharing with us your your choices. I, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. Do you have a name for this uh, games machine? I, I yeah yeah. Uh, what about the PlayStation Six <laughs> or Fez Two? Yeah I, yeah, call it Fez Two. The console does not. Does not come with Fez 2. It's like those special edition that don't come with the game. Yeah. It'll arrive at some point. Yeah, maybe. It's a mail-in thing. Yes, call it the Fez 2. Okay, nice. People will love that. They will. You won't get any any problems from that, I'm sure. No, no, no. Um, yeah, thank you again, Phil. You're welcome. It's been great to talk to you. I hadn't spoken to Phil for quite a few years before this conversation for this episode today, so I wasn't quite sure um, where he'd be at, what his uh, mental state would be, 
Like many people, the the last time that I really saw Phil, at least in the public eye, was when he was right in the eye of that social media storm and the news cycle around Fez 2. And it was clear that everything he was going through at that time was having an adverse effect on his uh, on his life. So I completely understand why he would have stepped away from social media, why he would not want to be a public figure anymore. And having heard him talk there about where he was at with the second game, uh, the follow-up to Fez, I understand why as well he would have cancelled that game. Although I have to say there's a small part of me that uh, hopes one day he will maybe return to that project. Anyway, how wonderful to hear from Phil again, to hear his passion coming through, his great knowledge about games, his great taste, I have to say as well. I mean, really fantastic choices for this concert. These are these are very, very fine video games that he is that he has chosen, enduring as well. So yeah, thank you for, for listening. Thank you to Phil as well for, for coming on and for uh, talking to me and for being so open about uh, his life and uh, everything he's been through and um, his growth as well, if that's, uh, if that's the right word, how he's moved on at least. You can write to me at myperfectconsole at gmail.com. Thank you to those of you who have done so already. Please just continue. It's lovely to um, hear your thoughts uh, and also your suggestions for potential future guests. Um, If you do have a spare moment, I would really appreciate if you could leave a review on uh, Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. It does help other people to find the show. You can find me on Twitter at Simon Parkin. And you can also follow the podcast for weekly updates and uh, little previews of who's coming up next week at my perfect console with the O's removed from console. That's because the uh, my perfect console is too long for Twitter. So I had to do something. Oh, and perfect console is already taken. Lastly, if you would like to support the podcast financially, then just head to Acast Plus. You can become an early access supporter. You will get your episodes 24 hours before the public and also without any ads as well, if that appeals. It's also a great way just to support what I'm doing here financially. Okay, next week we will be back with one new guest. There are five games and one more perfect console. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.